Welcome to the Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, What's New? And today's program is done in partnership with the Longevity Foundation, and you'll be hearing from them um, lots of resources that they have um, and a wonderful partner organization on all of our lung cancer programs. And today's program is supported by Regeneron, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have over 200, 250 participants on the program, so there's a lot of you on the program today. You come primarily from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have some international participants from Algeria, Canada, Egypt, Ghana, India, Poland, Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. Um, people from other countries are listening in as well, so that's lovely. And, um, and I, I just really want to just, um, we're delighted that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Babak Parang. And Dr. Parang is Assistant Attending Physician, Division of Hematology and Oncology, Wild Cornell Medical Medicine, New York Presbyterian. And Dr. Parang will be addressing an overview of non-small cell lung cancer, current standard of care, and the role of chemotherapy in targeted cancer therapies. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Parang. Hello and uh, good afternoon. Um, uh, my name is Bobak Parang. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist at Wall Cornell Medicine, where my uh, scientific and clinical research is on lung cancer. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with everybody today and to start the session off. Uh, I just wanted first to broadly um, kind of zoom out and give us a framework for the ensuing discussion by, by just asking what is lung cancer. And, you know, lung cancer is simply <clears throat> a cancer that arises from the cells of the lung. And cells are just basic microscopic units of our bodies that provide some specialized function. So we have about a trillion cells in our body, and they all, each of them, contain DNA or genes. And these genes provide instructions for how the cell operates. So we have hundreds of different types of cells in our bodies that provide a variety of different functions. We have liver cells, we have brain cells, colon cells, et cetera. Now our lung cells line our airways and they do things like help us absorb oxygen, they help us cough, fight off bacteria and viruses. And in normal situations, these lung cells divide and they grow in order to repair themselves and to keep our lungs working. And they grow and, and divide in a really coordinated manner. So how do they know when to grow and when to not grow? Uh, well, the instructions are in each cell's DNA or genes, okay? But sometimes that DNA becomes mutated or damaged, and now the instructions have been changed, and that lung cell that used to grow in a coordinated manner now follows, you know, errant instructions and goes rogue. And that begins to grow and divide without regard for its environment and, and becomes cancer. So really, just fundamentally, lung cancer happens when the cells lining our lungs acquire a mutation in their DNA or genes, 
we can use those, those terms interchangeably, DNA or genes. And these mutations in the DNA erroneously activates the cells to grow in an unchecked manner. Now, broadly speaking, there are two types of lung cancers. There's small cell and non-small cell. And these names really come from uh, about 100 years ago just by how the tumor cells looked under the microscope. So one tumor type looked small under the microscope, the other didn't look small, so it was called non-small cell. So non-small cell lung cancer makes about 85% of all lung cancer diagnoses, and it itself can be broken up into about three categories. There's adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and large cell carcinoma. So adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma make up about 80 to 90% of all non-small cell diagnoses, and large cell is something like 10 to 15%. Now, keep in mind, these names also just refer to how the tumors look under the microscope, so there's nothing more fancy uh, behind them than, than that. So, so how is non-small cell lung cancer diagnosed? Well, usually someone has a mass that is found on a CAT scan or some form of imaging like a chest X-ray or a PET scan, and that leads to a biopsy, which is when a doctor places a needle into the tumor and takes a chunk of those cells out. And then a pathologist looks at those cells under the microscope, and they can tell us if it looks like an adenocarcinoma, a squamous cell carcinoma, or a large cell carcinoma. And that pathologist then performs some additional tests on those tumor cells, okay, including sequencing the DNA or the genes for any mutations within that tumor. So let's say we now have a diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer. What's next? How do we treat? Well, the first thing we do is um, whenever we have a new diagnosis, we want to, quote, unquote, stage the lung cancer. And that just means that we try to really define where the lung cancer is and the extent to which it has spread. So is the tumor only in the lungs? as it spread to other organs, and this is really critical because it informs our treatment options. And this staging part of the diagnosis usually involves imaging, so CAT scans or PET scans or MRIs. And again, all of this is just to clarify where the cancer is. So roughly speaking, lung cancers that are stage one through three are quote-unquote local, or the tumor cells have not spread outside of the lung. And stage four lung cancer is when the tumor cells have spread outside of the lung to usually another organ in the body. Okay, so, so once we have a patient that is staged, the next question is well, what does treatment look like? And broadly speaking, there are two types of treatment. First, there's local treatment, like surgery or radiation, where we treat a tumor that is in one area. And we can do this either by surgically cutting the tumor out or by locally irradiating the tumor. And these treatments are done by surgical oncologists and radiation oncologists. The second kind of big bucket of treatment is, quote-unquote, systemic treatment. And this just means treatment that goes all throughout the body and kills tumor cells wherever they may be. And this is usually um, a pill or a medicine that's given to the vein. And this type of treatment is given by medical oncologists like myself and, and Dr. Cooper. Now, within the systemic treatment options, the, the treatment options that go all throughout the body, there's three buckets. There's chemotherapy, which is usually given through the veins as an infusion. And chemotherapy acts directly by killing cancer cells. The second bucket is immunotherapy, 
of immunotherapy is also an infusion through the veins, and it's a bit like the inverse of chemotherapy. It will actually activate your immune system to go and then kill cancer cells. Now, we know that if the cancer cells have a marker or make a protein called PDL1, and again, this is something that pathologists does in the microscope, we know that the tumor cells that have higher PDL1 tend to respond more to immunotherapy. So the third bucket of treatment, of systemic treatment, is called, quote unquote, targeted therapies. And these are usually pills that selectively target cancer cells that have a specific mutation in their DNA or genes. Remember how I said that lung cancer cells have DNA mutations that give them bad instructions to grow and divide? In some cases, we have pills that can specifically block or target those mutations. And some of those mutations are in genes called EGFR or ALK or KRAS. Okay, so let's put everything together here. If a patient has a lung cancer that is confined to one area, then this means that we can perform local therapies like surgery or radiation. And often we will add a systemic treatment before or after the surgery or radiation. So sometimes we'll give a pill before or after surgery or radiation, or we'll give chemotherapy or immunotherapy before or after radiation. And the reason we do that is because we know in some cases that giving systemic treatment before or after improves the chance of curing. And we have a lot of recent uh, data in the last couple of years where some patients will receive chemotherapy and immunotherapy before surgery, some will receive it after, and similarly with radiation. Now, if a lung cancer is spread outside of the lung and that patient is stage four, then usually local therapies aren't used because we need a treatment that goes to all sites of the disease and all throughout the body. So in a stage four patient, we primarily use our systemic options. So that's chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or target therapy if the mutation, <clears throat> excuse me, if the cancer harbors a mutation that can be targeted. So that's just the general framework for how we approach non-small cell lung cancer. And, you know, as you can see, there are a lot of different types and stages, and there are a lot of treatment options for non-small cell lung cancer. And really, every year we're adding more and more treatments that are available to use, and some of these will be discussed in the next few talks. So it's, it's, um, it's a time to be quite hopeful in the lung cancer community. Uh, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of uh, research going on. So thanks again for listening, and I'm happy to answer any questions in the Q&A coming up. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pring. That was really outstanding. Uh, just stellar presentation. and really set the tone for today's program so people have a good sense of, of just all the options um, for the treatment of, um, of non-small cell lung cancer. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Alyssa Cooper, and Dr. Cooper's assistant attending physician, Thoracic Oncology Service Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Cooper will be addressing new treatment approaches, the role of biomarkers and precision medicine in informing treatment choices, and new ways to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cooper. Hi, everyone. As mentioned, I'm a thoracic oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and I'm so pleased to be a part of this workshop. Um, as just mentioned, I'll be discussing new treatment approaches incorporating the role of biomarkers and precision medicine. 
In the field of lung cancer, as Dr. Perang just mentioned, we have been fortunate that there's been an explosion of new research that has come out even over the past few months on improving outcomes for patients living with lung cancer. One of the most exciting recent advances has been in the early stage setting. By early stage, I mean to reference what Dr. Perang called in the localized setting where the lung cancer has not spread where the standard of care of using surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy had not been altered in a long time. Several studies have now reported that using preoperative, which is also called neoadjuvant, neoadjuvant, chemotherapy and immunotherapy together prior to surgical resection of early stage lung cancer has substantially improved outcomes and the chance of cure for patients. Some of these studies have also incorporated a post-operative or adjuvant, adjuvant phase of giving immunotherapy to patients after the tumor has been removed, usually for up to a year of therapy. And these studies have also shown really exciting improvements in outcomes for patients. Two regimens, one without the post-operative part, so just preoperative so pre and post-operative, and one with preoperative pre and postoperative, sorry, so let me, let me say that again. Two regimens, one is just preoperative and one regimen with preoperative and postoperative are now FDA approved and can be used currently in the clinic and it's really an exciting time. Another advance in the early stage setting has been the use of targeted therapies for patients with oncogene-driven cancers. Those are the cancers that Dr. Perrine was referencing have a mistake in the DNA that is a change that can be targeted with a pill. For patients with those kinds of cancers, after surgical resection of the lung cancer, research has now shown that taking a targeted therapy for a specified duration after surgery has led to improvements in survival and an increasing cure. We've known for a couple of years now that for patients with EGFR mutations, taking a pill against EGFR after surgery can in, uh, improve outcomes. But now recently, within the past couple of months, we've also learned that this applies to patients with ALK rearrangements as well. In the setting of advanced lung cancer or, or lung cancer that has spread and will be treated with systemic therapies, there have been significant new developments as well involving new combinations of therapies as well as new compounds. In terms of new combinations of therapies, for patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer, which has traditionally been treated with a pill called osimertinib, studies have now shown that adding chemotherapy to osimertinib can prolong the time before the cancer grows, though obviously this comes at an increased risk of side effects from treatment. For patients whose tumors have a mutation in the KRAS gene called G12C, New research is investigating the combination of the targeted KRAS G12C inhibitors with both chemotherapy and with immunotherapy in hopes of improving their outcomes. Those are the new combinations. There are also new kinds of therapies being studied and even incorporated into the clinic. As Dr. Perrine discussed, we used to just be able to choose between chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted therapies. Now, new kinds of medications are also offering promise. A class of medications called antibody drug conjugates has been attracting a lot of attention, and you might have heard about it in the press. They have two parts. They're, these drugs are kind of a cross between chemotherapy and target, targeted therapy. So they have two parts, an antibody, which is targeted to a specific protein on cancer cells, and a powerful chemotherapy, and they're connected by a linker molecule. 
once the drug reaches the cancer cell target, the chemotherapy part is released into the cell. In this way, researchers hope that medications can be more targeted to the cancer cell only while still delivering a powerful medicine. Some of these medications require the cancer cells to be evaluated for a match protein target, but some of them do not and can be used against lung cancers of many types. One antibody drug conjugate, or ADC, you might see them abbreviated as, has been approved for use in lung cancer and many more are expected to follow suit soon. Another kind of new molecule is called a bispecific antibody. Antibodies are molecules that recognize a specific target, and now we have medications that recognize two targets at once as a way of increasing response. Lastly, for patients whose tumors have driver mutations, there are newer generations of drugs being developed currently with even more efficacy, though still unfortunately not without side effects. Formerly untargetable mutations, such as those in KRAS that are not G12C, may soon also have options in the clinic as new pills are currently being tested in clinical trials. You might see written KRAS G12V or G12D. Those are common mutations that have not yet had a targeted therapy option and may soon. I want to switch gears and talk about all the effects of all of these treatments on the patient and how we can think of treatment side effects and symptoms currently. While it is really remarkable how much progress we are making with new research into new treatment strategies that can prolong patients' lives, we still need to be very mindful of how to maximize quality of life for patients living with lung cancer. One of the ways we hope to formally focus on this is by including patient-reported outcomes into clinical trials, because many times the kind of side effects that oncologists judge to be quote-unquote tolerable or quote-unquote manageable can really add up and start to impact quality of life. Oncologists talk about side effects in terms of grades, so G-R-A-D-E-S, grades, and that sometimes treatments may have only minor grade side effects. So grade one or grade two is sort of expected to be tolerable. But if this is diarrhea or a rash or even fatigue, these symptoms can become quite bothersome overall. The kind of attention to how patients actually feel rather than just how they look to the oncologist is hopefully becoming a more important metric in the clinic so that patients and doctors can make decisions together about the best way forward. Acknowledging that many of the pills we use to treat lung cancer have side effects, some retrospective work has focused on if dose reductions decrease efficacy in the long run, and the good news is it often doesn't, and dose reduction can be an option for some patients on some medications. Something I've found quite helpful is to have patients see a palliative care doctor, or in my own institution it's called a supportive care doctor, very early in their course. Studies have shown that patients feel better and also live longer if a palliative care, is invo palliative care doctor is involved in their care. Oncologists, unfortunately, have limited time in the clinic appointment, and I found it very helpful for patients to be able to have adequate time to discuss their pain, their shortness of breath, their nausea, or anxiety with a clinician who is an expert in this field. Just as there is new research about treatment strategies, there is also new research about ways to minimize symptoms related to cancer, and it is all of our goal patients not only as long, but as well as possible. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Cooper, um, for that um, excellent presentation. And, um, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. Thanks so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig is Professor and Chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, 
Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation, oncology in treating non-small cell lung cancer and pain, types of radiation treatments, and clinical trials, how research offers additional treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, thank you for having me on this call. So we use radiation in a variety of different ways in the treatment of lung cancer. Um, so as discussed earlier, when the tumor is in its early stage, and that means it hasn't spread to any lymph nodes or um, hasn't spread outside of the lung, a radiation is very effective as a cure for the lung cancer. And this is usually in patients who are unable to have surgery for their lung cancer. So if someone's not a surgical candidate because maybe they have other medical problems or um, you know, they don't want to have surgery, then radiation is an excellent alternative to surgery in order to uh, treat the lung cancer. And this is typically done with a technique of radiation called stereotactic body radiation therapy, or SBRT. Um, there's a, an, another phrase used for it called stereotactic ablative uh, body radiation, SABR, S-A-B-R, and those two terms are equivalent. So if you see them both in the literature, it's just um, two different ways of saying the same thing. And this is a very focused treatment where we deliver a very high dose of radiation to the small area where the tumor is, and the treatment's done over the course of five treatments or less. And this has been found to be um, extremely effective at uh, destroying the tumor in that area uh, so it doesn't come back with results almost as good as, as surgery. So it's really become an excellent alternative in the past uh, 10 to 15 years since that technique uh, has been around. Um, the other situation where we give radiation or to cure someone's lung cancer is when it has spread uh, to the lymph nodes uh, right next to the lung. So we typically call this a locally advanced lung cancer. So it hasn't spread outside of the lung, which would make it metastatic. So it's still curable and still within the lung, but it is um, a, a little bit more serious of a situation than your typical early stage lung cancer. So in these situations, uh, surgery is also an option, but there are some reasons uh, someone might not be able to have surgery. So similar to an early stage lung cancer, someone just might not be in a good enough medical condition um, to have surgery. But also very frequently when the, when the tumor is advanced in the lymph nodes, um, it's just too difficult to be cut out safely. Uh, so in those cases, radiation takes the place of surgery. But unlike early stage lung cancer, in these situations, we give the radiation with chemotherapy uh, at, the, at the same time. So it's chemo radiation uh, given uh, over the course of six weeks. Um, it's, it's, um, and instead of just being a few treatments like stereotactic radiation, um, it's usually spread out over about six weeks. So it's a, a more pro prolonged treatment. 
Um, it's, it's just not safe to treat the center part of the lung where the lymph nodes are with very high doses of radiation. Um, you, you need to, to give a little dose each day in order for it to be done safely. And this treatment is very effective as well um, uh, and, and to take care of the tumor. And just in the past um, you know, five to seven years, we found that if you give immunotherapy, so the, the treatment we were talking about, Dr. Parang was talking about earlier, um, after the chemo radiation, it, it improves survival even more. So that's been a very exciting um, advancement over the past few years. Um, and we also give radiation for a third situation, and this is when uh, the cancer has spread outside of the lung, and we give radiation to palliate any symptoms that the, the tumor is causing. So a very classic situation would be a tumor has spread uh, to a bone, and it's causing pain in the bone, and we give a very short course of radiation uh, to that area uh, to uh, treat the tumor there and take care of the pain, and that would be palliative radiation. This does not cure the overall situation, but it does help uh, with a person's quality of life and, and pain. Uh, there are some new techniques in radiation uh, that are out there, and uh, you might hear about them in uh, the press or um, on TV. Uh, this is proton radiation and MR-guided radiation. And these are highly specialized techniques. Protons involve the building of a, of a, a huge machine and a cyclotron to deliver a, a charged particle at the tumor. Um, and protons are for very specialized situations. So um, usually for lung cancer, a patient is not offered proton radiation. It's, it's usually more for situations where the tumor has come back and needs to be treated again, or the tumor is adjacent to a very uh, sensitive organ for the radiation, such as a spinal cord, and you need the precision of protons uh, to, to deliver um, an effective dose at the tumor. So for probably 90% of people who are getting radiation, uh, they, they will not be offered protons, just because it's, it's just not needed. It's, it's, it's an excellent technology, but not every situation calls for it. And MR-guided radiation is, is um, also similarly very specialized, and this is using an MRI machine at the same time as the radiation in case organs have moved from day to day. So a classic situation might be in, in the belly where the stomach can be big or small depending on um, how much uh, food or stomach contents are in there, and you might need to change the plan from a Monday to a Tuesday. So it is occasionally used in lung cancer, but, but not that often. So again, uh, uh, you might hear about the technology, uh, but just because it's a newer technology doesn't mean it's just necessarily uh, the best one for a particular situation. And a lot of people with lung cancer uh, don't, just don't need that, that extra guidance from it. Um, and the role of clinical trials is very important in advancing uh, how we uh, learn about uh, treatment and how we, how we make new discoveries. So a lot of the things that uh, Dr. Prang, Dr. Cooper, and myself have been talking about today were discovered through clinical trials. So uh, the use of immunotherapy, 
you know, so typically, you know, first a new medicine is used to see if it can be used safely, and then it's tested to see if it's effective. And then the classic trial is to do what's called a randomized control trial, where one group of people get one treatment and the other group get a different treatment. And then after a period of time, you see which group is doing better. So this is how we learn that um, immunotherapy helps after chemo radiation. It's how we learn that doing you know, uh, immunotherapy before surgery uh, can be very helpful. Um, so, but not all trials are positive, and, th and that's why we do it on a trial. So just being on a trial doesn't necessarily mean that the, the newer treatment's better. That, that's why we have to uh, test it out. So when you see uh, your physician, they might recommend a clinical trial, and um, we definitely encourage uh, people to enroll on them if, um, if they think it's right for them. Um, and this is really uh, how we learn what treatments are effective. And, and it might get you a, a new treatment if it's a randomized trial. You know, uh, it is a bit of a coin flip, but if it's a, um, a trial investigating a, a new technique or a new therapy, um, you, know, you, you probably will be getting that actual treatment. So that's something definitely to consider uh, when you see your doctors and their clinical trials uh, throughout all specialties, uh, surgery and radiation, and especially medical oncology. Again, thank you very much, and I'll be available for questions uh, later on in the call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was such a wonderful presentation, very informative, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Thanks so much. And um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. And Dr. O'Donnell is Clinical Director of Early Detection and Prevention of Cancer, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing the important role of movement and physical activity, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you so much for the invitation to come today. I have several topics that I'll be covering. I'm going to be talking about the importance of movement and physical activity. And then I'm also going to talk a little bit about how to optimize your appointment with your provider. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is physical activity. With a cancer diagnosis comes a lot of um, concern from many people about taking care of you uh, and doing things for you. And so what I really want to do is encourage you to stay active. Um, you know, activity is, can be a broad range of things, ranging from walking, some people say running and cycling, uh, but really it's just moving your body. And being sedentary is not good for you. And so trying to stay active, even if it doesn't mean going to the gym or lifting weights or anything like that, but staying active during your cancer treatment is really important. So when people offer to do things for you, try to continue to be independent, do the activities of daily living that you've always done, the things like emptying the dishwasher, uh, doing the laundry, keeping your body moving, and be aware of the amount of time that you're spending sedentary or stationary. 
you may not feel well at all times. So it's important to listen to your body, but also balance that with the knowledge that you want to preserve your muscle mass and preserve your ability to, to do the things in your life that are important to you. And there are types of exercise that may be right for you, uh, things like yoga or walking or riding a stationary bike. You may be able to do those things, and that's an important conversation to have with your oncologist and your oncology team to see if there are any special limitations of what you can and can't do in terms of physical activity as you go through your cancer therapy. But it's really important um, to keep in mind that you will only do better if you stay active. And, you know, one of the things that I love to say to my patients is, for, for lack of anything else, turn on some music, dance, move around your house. It makes you feel good. It brings your mood up, and you're using your body. Um, and that's so critical to ensuring your long-term stamina as you go through cancer care. And really, this ties in well with just about uh, what else I'm going to talk about, which is optimizing your appointment with your provider. Sometimes people are having telemedicine visits, um, and, and some people now have shifted back uh, to being in person. And whether you're meeting with your MD or your mid-level provider, it's important that you get the most out of that visit. There are certain things as providers that we have to cover during a visit to ensure your safety as you go through therapy, making sure your labs are okay, asking you how you're feeling. But really, coming prepared, whether it be with a list of questions or a list of symptoms that you've had over the past couple of weeks, because we've all had that experience where we get in the doctor's office and we forget what we were going to ask, and no sooner do we get out to the parking lot than we remember. So come prepared. Write those things down. If you're doing a virtual visit from home, you can bring a family member in. That's always great to do, or have um, somebody else uh, come with you to your visits as a second set of ears is always great. Uh, but really, it's important to just, you know, bring up everything, um, you know, that affects your quality of life, too. So if you're having trouble sleeping, uh, you're having new sources of pain, make sure your provider knows that. We want to know that, and we want to really not only help treat your cancer, but ensure the best possible quality of life as you go through cancer treatment. One other thing, too, now with open notes and open access to your metal charts, you may get... Um, a notification that there's a new result or a new note. And as you review those, um, you know, those are are meant for for you to see, but also can be used in the time of your next appointment to bring up any questions that you might have if you see them. Um, so if you do, you know, hold on to those questions and bring them to your appointments um, so that you can review it and make sure you have complete understanding of your cancer care. We really want to just emphasize the importance of trying to treat the whole patient uh, and make sure you have the highest quality experience you can throughout um, your cancer journey. So again, I want to thank Dr. Messner and the whole um, team for inviting me to participate. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was just an exquisite talk, really wonderful, and lots of good information for people. And so thank you, thank you so much. And that reminder to people to stay active is really important um, in, in many ways and to monitor how much time they're spending sitting as opposed to um, uh, walking. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden, and Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden. 
Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential. I'm not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy, so quality of life. Your diet might be modified during and or after your cancer treatment to assist with managing any side effects that you might experience. Some of the potential side effects include dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, a decrease in appetite, and fatigue. During your course of treatment, your nutrition needs can increase and may require a change in the foods that you eat and a little bit different meal plan. If you're not able to meet your nutrition needs, it can impact your overall health, tolerance to treatment, and may even delay your treatment. A dietitian is part of your healthcare team and can provide you with your calorie, protein, and fluid needs, along with any information on diet modifications on how best to meet your goals. Oftentimes with lung cancer patients, um, fatigue is one of the side effects um, that is most present um, and interfering with nutrition. Primarily, um, when somebody's more fatigued, they tend to sleep more often, so they're eating less. Um, it can even result, some of the fatigue can even result in you feeling full quickly because it can be tiring for some patients. And so meeting with a dietitian can help you focus on the foods that are going to be most beneficial in nourishing your body during this time. Now, even if you're overweight, you can still become malnourished. Um, when nutritional needs are not met, the body will typically use a protein or a muscle store um, for energy. And what can happen is you can start to reduce your muscle. And with our muscle, it's used in a lot of ways. It helps us get up out of chairs, walk around, do the things that we need to do. It gives us our endurance. And so it can be very concerning. It can even put us at higher risk for falling. So, be sure to know your healthcare team. Communicate with them as soon as you see a change in your weight that's not intentional or your ability to consume food or if you feel like you're eating less than you normally would have been eating. Now, there are some medications to assist with some of the side effects. So talk with your healthcare team as symptoms arise. The sooner, the better. Now, if you're experiencing side effects um, when you're eating, keep a log. Take note of the things that are giving you challenges and bring that to your healthcare team. Um, your dietitian can really help in modifications and working through some of those um, areas that you may be challenged in. Hydration. Now, hydration is something we don't talk a lot about. We're worried about your weight all the time and everything else, but hydration is really coincides with your nutrition because if you're not eating as much, you're typically not drinking as much. Now, dehydration can increase nausea and your fatigue and make you feel dizzy. So fluids, anything that's liquid at room temperature, water, milk, and sports drinks. Now, guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid per day. Some treatments might increase your need for hydration. So talk with your healthcare team. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you. So know who they are and how to reach them. On that note, I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was a wonderful presentation, and I just want to thank you so much for that uh, information, which I know will be very helpful to our participants. And our next speaker is Ms. Ann Fish-Stegel, and Ms. Stegel is Senior Vice President, Patient Services and Healthcare Delivery Longevity Foundation. And she'll be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services, she will be discussing the One Cancer Helpline, 844-360-5864, and our website, um, 
the, I mean the website for Longevity, which is www.longevity.org. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fish-Stiegel. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, it is our pleasure at Longevity to partner with Cancer Care, uh, two great nonprofit organizations that um, just really complement each other and work well together. So I appreciate this opportunity to talk about what Longevity has to offer. Longevity is the largest national lung cancer foundation in the country, and um, it uh, includes many different aspects, not just the area that I oversee, which is the patient services and healthcare delivery, but we have large departments uh, working diligently in all aspects of research as well as clinical policy and um, changes in legislature. We have um, a huge team of partners who partner consistently with healthcare institutions as well as um, you know pharma partners. So uh, working working all the time to take care of anyone affected by lung cancer. And our mantra is that we are working to transform living with lung cancer. And to do that, we, from the patient services side, have several uh, opportunities for survivors and caregivers. We have virtual meetups that uh, are led by our care navigators, which are online support groups. They're really just many, like many MINI communities where uh, patients really get to know each other, survivors and caregivers really get to know each other and build relationships with other people going through um, the same journeys. We have a large social media presence, and those um, are also uh, communities where our um, survivors and caregivers can get together, ask each other questions, um, share information about clinical trials, share information about new treatments, share information um, about ways to handle side effects even. And we, we um, do not um, intervene with those. Uh, we just let um, survivors have the, their own communities there. As Carolyn mentioned, we have our helpline, which is uh, partnered with Cancer Care, where survivors or caregivers can call in and speak directly to a social worker at Cancer Care. And uh, that number again was 844-360-5864. We also have peer-to-peer um, -peer mentoring that we call our ambassadors. And those are folks that if you are looking to join a clinical trial and you're just not sure uh, how that what that looks like or how um, that happens. Our peer-to-peer -peer group uh, will partner you with a active member of a clinical trial or someone who has completed a clinical trial that can walk you through that and help you make educated decisions. We also have lots of uh, resources on our longevity website that Carolyn mentioned to you. We have um, from screening all the way through clinical trials we have an early lung cancer uh, center with lots of information about screening and early lung cancer treatment. We have a patient and a caregiver resource center with lots of different educational materials that are available there. We have our gateways, which are 
um, little mini blogs that are very highly specialized, whether you have non-small cell or small cell, whether you happen to uh, fall into one of the biomarker groups, there's information for you there as well. We, in addition to our policy and our research, we are also doing a lot of work in health equity, and we hold lots of events for uh, patients and caregivers. As you all are aware, it's Lung Cancer Awareness Month here in November, and to date we have had um, multiple events. We had a multi-institutional event down in Atlanta last week. We have had our uh, Breathe Deep events, which are our lung cancer walks. <clears throat> and we will be having our um, annual Lung Cancer Survivorship Conference this year, May 3rd to the 5th in Atlanta, Georgia. We also are very involved in clinical trial advocacy. We have opportunities to help you find a clinical trial um, as well as our clinical trial ambassadors. We also um, advocate for many clinical trials uh, that may be on our Facebook um, pages where we will um, announce openings of clinical trials uh, that patients may, may look into. So we have a lot of resources, a lot of information available for uh, lung cancer patients, survivors, and uh, their caregivers on our website. So um, thank you again for giving me this opportunity, and I will hand it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ann. Um, wonderful presentation and lots of resources. Thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Charlotte Ferenz, and Ms. Ferenz is a lung cancer coordinator at Cancer Care. She's also an oncology social worker, and she'll be discussing cancer care programs and services, and discussing our hope line. I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ferenz. I'm honored to be a part of this program today. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the financial, emotional, and educational challenges during a cancer diagnosis. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, online support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial and copayment assistance for some medications. Our National Resource Navigation Service involves short-term, strengths-based approach to resource navigation, where specialists work with both patients and caregivers to find additional avenues of support, either emotional or financial. Many of our services depend on where people live, but it can be helpful to utilize our social workers and specialists to see what services are available in your area. Cancer Care's national online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register on our website to join an online group that's specific either to lung cancer patients or lung cancer caregivers, as well as several other categories. We have young adult patient groups, young adult caregiver groups, a Healing with Words Therapeutic Writing Group, LGBTQ plus women caregiver groups, and several more. We also have on Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, a wide array of reading materials and education support. We have national community workshops, our coping circles that address a variety of topics and diagnoses. You can register for those either online or on our Hopeline. And saved versions of our most recent commonly asked questions in lung cancer are available on the website. 
We also have a new partnership, mytrialist.org, that has a lot of information about clinical trials. They lay everything out really simply with videos of people speaking about their experiences as well as frequently asked questions. As others have mentioned on this call, navigating a lung cancer diagnosis is not something you have to go through alone as a patient or a caregiver. By calling the Longevity Helpline in partnership with Cancer Care at 844-360-5864 or the Cancer Care Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673, individuals have access to Cancer Care's oncology social workers who can help connect you with that support. Building community and reaching out for help isn't always easy, but it is important to maintain your support systems and coping strategies when dealing with a lung cancer diagnosis or a clinical trial. It's been lovely to be a part of this program today. Thank you so much for your attention and letting me speak. I'll turn the program back to Dr. Messner now. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Friends, and thank you for that wonderful presentation, wonderful resources. And now um, we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Regina, to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only, and you may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And so we have quite a few questions here, so let's see how many we can take. Um, <coughs> what's an interesting question for Dr. Prang? What is the effect of smoking while doing immunotherapy? Uh, that's a great question. I'm assuming the the, the questioner is asking, if you are smoking concurrently while you receive immunotherapy. Um, I don't think we have any great data uh, to really answer that question. What we do know is that, generally speaking, um, patients who have a strong history of smoking or who are active smokers and who get diagnosed with lung cancer, um, those tumors tend to respond better to immunotherapy, meaning that immunotherapy is more effective in, uh, in patients who have a history of smoking. Now, that's probably due to the fact that if you smoke over time, those tumors tend to have more mutations, and so the immune system is able to recognize that tumor uh, more readily um, than in a tumor that has low mutations. Um, but, you know, I, it's a good question about what, ha what happens if you are smoking while receiving immunotherapy. Of course, we always recommend that patients um, <clears throat> try to stop smoking uh, after a diagnosis of lung cancer for the, you know, obvious health benefits. Um, but, you know, I will say that, um, you know, if smoking is something that is very important to you and provides a huge amount of quality of life for you, then it's a balance, right? So um, completely cutting smoking and you being miserable while you're going through a lung cancer diagnosis isn't the goal, right? The goal is to make you feel better. And so while we always um, want our patients to stop smoking, uh, you should really talk to your oncologist about the right balance for you, okay? The point is to, it's a long road of treatment and recovery, and um, uh, it, these things aren't that binary, you know, so uh, we really have to look at the whole picture. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, what a wonderful answer and great question. That's an important question. Um, and a question for Dr. Cooper. How can we distinguish a primary lung cancer from metastatic lung cancer? Thanks for that question. That's a really good question. Um, when when doctors talk about a primary 
what they usually mean is that is where the tumor started. So as Dr. Pring really eloquently described in his speech about the cells that have sort of um, developed an aberrant message about growing sort of uncontrolled or, or dysregulated in a dysregulated manner, um, when we say primary, we mean that the organ that that started to happen in was a lung cancer and of lung cells. Now, the, sometimes patients can have two separate tumors in the lung, and each of them are what we call its own primary, meaning independently, each of those sort of cell clusters started to get that bad message to grow unchecked, um, but they aren't related to each other. They didn't start in point A and move to point B, rather point A and point B started to grow at the same time. Now, what that means for the patient is that that indicates to us that the lung cancer has not developed the propensity to be able to spread and grow, and so that we might be able to treat two separate tumors in the lung, uh, you know, as they are very early stage, sort of as, as Dr. Crane and Rosenzweig were saying with, with surgery or with radiation, trying to just get rid of them entirely. If, however, we think that a lung cancer started in point A and ended up at point B, that says to us as oncologists that that lung cancer has developed the ability to migrate and to, to move through the body. And so that, that second part, part B, is actually what we might call a metastasis or a new secondary site from the original site. Now, this is getting a little bit into the weeds, so please tell me if this is confusing. But what that means is that that lung cancer may be a little bit more challenging to treat and may require, um, you know, more... Uh, more tools in the toolbox, whether that includes uh, systemic therapy in addition or, or a different treatment plan because it's not two separate primaries. What's easier to understand is when a lung cancer has started in the lung and moved to a different organ, that is what we call metastasis and a metastatic disease. So, for example, a site of cancer in the liver that started in the lung you know, we know that that looks so like lung cancer under the microscope, but it ended up in the liver, so we know it moved there, or in the brain or in the bone. But in the lung itself, there are those two separate possibilities, and we do treat them very differently. So it's important to try to understand that. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And question for Dr. Prang. Um, can the genomic testing for, for targeted therapy be done with cancer cells found in pleural fluid? that has been drained, or do you need a biopsy from the primary tumor? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So, uh, yes, um, you can do sequencing off of tumor cells that are found in the pleural fluid. Uh, the big question there is if. Um, so if there are enough tumor cells in the pleural fluid, um, and that's really determined by the pathology team, <clears throat> then you can certainly do DNA sequencing and identify uh, mutations in the tumor. Um, you can also uh, identify mutations in the tumor from the blood in some cases. So um, we know for, some, for unclear reasons that sometimes patients actually have tumor DNA floating in their blood, and that tends to be more common in the more advanced stage, so in stage four patients. And uh, we have the technology now that's FDA approved and um, you know, clinically validated that we can actually pick up some of these mutations in the blood. So, uh, yeah, the, there's multiple ways to do it in addition to just getting tissue from the tumor itself. Excellent. Thank you. And um, 
So this would be for Dr. Cooper. Are there any any treatments? Are, are any treatments available for stage four and NRAS gene mutation? NRAS is that that NRAS is that what you asked? Yes. Yeah. So that's a really good question because um, so the RAS pathway is a pathway within cells that sort of um, tells the cell to grow and divide, and there are a few different mutations that can happen. KRAS is sort of the one, the most publicized one, but there are also NRAS and HRAS mutations. There are no currently approved medications for this in the stage four setting, um, but usually the best scenario um, to ask your oncologist about would be to ask if they have a phase one or an early drug development center in which usually what happens is a bunch of different solid tumors are bucketed together based on their mutation status. So it may be um, many different kinds of cancers but all have similar mutations being treated with a new drug. And that, I think, would be sort of the best um, line of questioning to ask the oncologist about is if there are any early phase clinical trials for patients with, with that kind of mutation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much. And these are great questions. We have many more, but um, we only have so much time. So I'm going to ask each of our speakers to give you a takeaway from today's call. Um, we'll start with Dr. Prang, then um, we'll do Dr. Cooper, Dr. Rosenzweig, um, and Ms. Ferenz. So um, uh, let's see, starting with Dr. Prang, just to take away what you, maybe a minute, to just take away what you people, what we'd like people to take away from today's program. Yeah, I think uh, the most important thing to take away from this is, um, you know, if you're a lung cancer patient or a family member or a friend of someone who has lung cancer, you know, as you heard on the call, it's very complicated because we've made so much progress in identifying different kinds of lung cancer within non-small cell lung cancer. And from that come a lot of different treatment options. Um, so, you know, I think... Um, you know, it's cliche, but it's really true that you should have a lot of hope. Um, it, things are moving so quickly um, that there really is a lot of reason for optimism, and things are going to be very different even a year from now um, at, you know, at this next call. So there's going to be more treatments to discuss. So, you know, as, um, as stressful as these times can be, I think it's really important to remember that there's a lot of very good reason to be optimistic and hopeful. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And Dr. Cooper? Yes, I totally echo what Dr. Pring was just saying and, and also want to emphasize and encourage patients and their families to talk with their oncologists about, um, you know, emphasizing sort of the, the best way to live well with lung cancer in addition to as long. And I think, you know, generally we share, share the goal with, with our patients that we we don't want you to be thinking about lung cancer all the time. We want you to you know, undergo treatment so that you can live your life and, and not be thinking about lung cancer all the time and, and let us do sort of some of the thinking and worrying for you. And, and hopefully our goal is that some of these treatments will, will let you have some of your life back and, and do the things that you want to do. So as much as you can sort of discuss with your team if it's possible about, you know, moving treatments around trips that you want to take or prioritizing things that are important to you in terms of holidays or, or things like that. It's really important that we take these things into consideration. And even in the side effect profile, you know, if, if, a, if a pill is, is really just 
bothersome in terms of the side effects, please don't be afraid to bring it up with your doctor and hope, you know, there are things that they can hopefully do to help you feel as comfortable as possible in your treatment. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, and um, uh, Mr. Renz. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Dr. Rosenzweig. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Yeah, and, and, um, and I, think I agree with the above suggestions and things have greatly improved, you know, over the course of my career for patients with lung cancer and their families. I think the one uh, takeaway message I'd be is um, don't have anxiety over the different choices you might face in your treatment. I think it's very natural to feel that way, that you might be choosing between uh, an effective treatment and an ineffective treatment, but usually the difference between two choices are are very minimal. and if you're going to an institution um, that that's you know a, a good institution with doctors who specialize in the treatment of lung cancer, um, any different options you get are all probably you know shades of the same color and not remarkably different. So don't obsess too much over you know one doctor might have had a slightly different schedule than a different one. They're, they're probably all um, just about the same. So. It's it's stressful enough to be going through cancer. You you don't need to add to it uh, with with some of the decision making that you might encounter. That's an excellent point. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's really important for people to hear. And um and Ms. Torrance. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think one thing that I say often on these calls and every day on the helpline is that. When I say you don't have to go through this by yourself, I mean that quite literally, that there are other patients, other caregivers, other people who have asked their medical team that same question, who have advocated for just the same type of either accommodation or change to the schedule, et cetera. And I think that in talking with other people who have been there, there's something really lovely that comes to fruition. And so I hope that anyone listening to this call who's feeling like, you know, they're the only person dealing with something specific, I hope that you're able to talk with someone else with a similar diagnosis, with a similar treatment plan, or who's having similar experiences with side effects, and hear some of what helped them in their communication strategies or in their emotional support as they navigate that stress and and worry sometimes because there is there is good help out there, but it it does take some calling around to find. Excellent, thank you, thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal, and I also want to thank all of our participants because actually um, you've asked such really great questions today. Um, and um, so I want to acknowledge the fact that some of you were in queue and got to ask your question. Some of you have a question yet to ask, and some of you are thinking of a question. So I would. Recommend that everybody on this call today take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and they actually can best address all of your um, your questions because they have their records, you know, your records in front of them. And so, and also, you've learned things from today's program. On a lot of things you've learned today. So take your questions back with the information you've learned today, and ask your questions, and ask them over and over again until you get the answers that you need and keep asking questions, that's really important. And um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with non-small cell lung cancer. I want you now to know that you're a part of a community of support 
and that community of support includes the Longevity Foundation, and it also includes Cancer Care, and many other organizations. And you'll be receiving a SurveyMonkey evaluation at the end of a couple of days um, this program, and that will include all kinds of resources we've mentioned today and some that we may not have mentioned um, that you'll have um, at, at your fingertips. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.